0: Welcome to the Sustainability Business Podcast, a show featuring conversations shaping the future of energy and sustainability.
1: The
2: socio-political history of music has always been somewhere at the forefront of cultural change.
1: The music industry, you won't find it on this uh, typical uh, international energy agency report.
3: Audience travel, scope three emission is, is one of the biggest drivers.
2: The revolution doesn't happen when everybody realizes that things are broken. It happens when everybody realizes everybody else realizes that things are broken. And it feels to me we're halfway between those two points with the climate emergency.
0: The Sustainability Business Podcast is produced by Schneider Electric's Sustainability Business Team.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm Moritz Scholz. I'm a sustainability consultant with Schneider Electric. This is The Other Scopes, a Schneider Electric podcast, where we want to take a closer look at industries that do not come directly to our minds when we think of decarbonization, but uh, which, on the other hand, are inherent part of our everyday lives, like, for instance, arts or movies or sports. And today we want to kick this off with uh, probably the most emblematic one, which is the music industry. And I'm therefore very happy that we are joined by an authentic expert on the topic, um, a huge music fan, uh, man who uh, is the co-founder of an organization called Music Declares Emergency someone who comes with a clear message which is no music on a dead planet and uh, he's joining us now live from london thank you so much for being with us uh, Lewis louis jameson no
2: oh, thank you for having me
1: and i'm uh, also very happy that i'm joined by a great expert on uh, sustainability in general and uh, who happens to be also a colleague of mine Jonathan uh, Thomas McDonough, um, Thank you also so much for being with us, uh, uh, John. How are you doing?
3: Well, thanks, Moritz. And yeah,
1: I'm here now to say thank you, everybody, for joining us. And uh, Luis, maybe to kick this off, maybe in just two sentences, what is currently the most sustainable band in the world?
2: The most sustainable band in the world. Goodness me. Um, Sorry, but that's an impossible question to answer. It depends on the yardsticks you use to measure it. So the music industry, given that, that there's so many facets to it and so many relationships in it, it's impossible to 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 offer a one size fits all solution. So, you know, your question is, who's the most sustainable band out there? Well, the most sustainable band out there probably don't tour, don't record and play their local pub. Um, and walk to the pub with their instruments. So they're the most sustainable band in the world, but clearly they're not, nobody knows who they are apart from the people who go to the pub and watch them. Um, So in terms of scale, there there are certainly artists that that are doing interesting things, but the Eilish um, is very forthright in the way that she tours. Coldplay are very engaged with technical solutions and technological solutions to the problem. And people like uh, that work with Reverb, who are an environmental sustainability touring consultancy in the United States. Virtually everybody they work with, whether it's the 1975 or whether it's the Dave Matthews Band, so a real scale and scope of, of different genres of music, they're all engaged with the conversation. So a better answer, I think, is how can all acts become the best sustainable plan in the world because the the solutions
1: exist it's just a question of them being uh, applied right so that uh, somehow fits in with what we are observing as well in our day-to-day operations so that climate change is not a one-sided story but rather a bit more complex um maybe now to to go Back to the very stuff we said in the beginning, so um, music industry, you won't find it, you know, on this uh, typical uh, International Energy Agency report uh, that every year kind of lists the top 10 polluters. Uh, so you won't find the music industry among them. Um, the very basic question we kind of have, where did this motivation on your side, come from? Uh, yeah,
2: I, I mean, you know, the the, the kind of question around the, the what used to be called climate change and then became the climate crisis and now is the climate emergency, just in the ratcheting up of the immediacy of the problem. I suppose um, it's something that that I've been engaged with back into the the, the 90s. Really, it came out of um, out of my interest in in, in equitable and, and and more equitable um, kind of societal structures. Um, and I, I, I kind of came to a conclusion that if we didn't, if we didn't look at, at the climate and, and the biodiversity crisis through that prism, then then all the other ideas just kind of go out of the, out of the window. So, but but the reason um, or the, the, the coalescing, the crystallizing of that idea really came from one, one very simple uh, point, which is a music fan from the age of six. Uh, or probably younger, I mean, I I grew up in a a household where popular music radio was on all day, so I I grew up in pop music. I'm 51 now, um, but I've worked in the music industry for 30 years. Um, My engagement with music is not just around the entertainment, it's around the the, the kind of meaning that music has given to my life, and and that is both political, it's political, it's social, it's you know the changes that music has been a part of and driven. You know, big political changes, obviously in the in the nineteen eighties. You know, had you had musicians, uh, you know, advocating for for different ways of of being whether it was kind of socialist kind of principles in the UK, but you you know Nana's 99 Red Balloons in Germany was an anti-war song, you, you pick your favourites, there's a Vietnam war, there's the very birth of rock and roll in itself is political, you know the kind of taking of a black music form and putting it into Heartland of White America and then the Stones pick that up and translate that into a UK concept. So the socio-political history of music has always been somewhere at the forefront of cultural change and but with the climate emergency it didn't seem to be doing that It was the first time there'd been a major kind of social and, and, and cultural kind of issue that music didn't engage with in a in a comprehensive way uh, and and working in the industry we kind of knew why um and so you know there, there were a couple of reasons really one is is that the music industry itself was a contributor to, to the climate emergency unlike most political and social causes it's hard because it's a systemic problem it's hard it's, order, it's impossible even to 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 comment on it from outside because you are undoubtedly part of the system so there's the hypocrisy charge so that was the first problem the second problem is it's so vast you know you you know you can express your your fears about the climate through not wanting polar bears to die or worrying about the air quality in your high street you know it's that vast everything is part of it that it's very difficult to find a kind of aligned position um so so but at the same time we knew that there were uh, businesses and artists that were working in this space and we also knew there was progress so w- we felt that there was there was scope there for music to speak with a more coherent voice on this and to do something of value in the space um so we created music to close emergency to bring those together um so th- that was the kind of genesis point of it all and that was 2019 and and, and some of it w- certainly was certainly accelerated by the actions of Extinction Rebellion, particularly in London, because at the, the start of 2019, Exile took over London and pushed the climate emergency to the top of the news agenda, um, which was vital work, but which also kind of re-informed our, our thinking, which was, well, music could do that without stopping a city. It could do that <laughs> more regularly and in a more kind of um, continual way. Um, and then, the third strand of it was the fact that we felt that um, a lot of the general public in the u k there was a survey that came out around that time that said eighty two percent of the u k population accepted that there was a climate emergency uh, or believed there was a climate emergency, which was great because it meant we had consensus We had scientific consensus to a degree now we had public consensus what we didn 't have was any kind of consensus on what to do next, and the more you dug into the research, the more you realized that wasn 't because People are are not intelligent because, again, the vastness of it and the kind of lack of proper realistic connection to people in terms of what it meant was stopping movement towards a better future. So we again felt that music could engage people, make them feel part of the conversation, encourage them to be part of the conversation through both you know, music cultural force in terms of it's just it's spread, it's everywhere these days, everywhere you go, you hear music. But also through particularly artists who have very unique relationships with their fans, of so trust and fans themselves have relationships of trust and communities between themselves. So you could see how all these various factors could play together to, to bring people into a space where they could actually talk about it rather than feeling they weren't allowed in the conversation.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. one thing i really thought was interesting about your your response there is there's kind of two two elements that's there's one is that the music industry itself can reduce its climate footprint which Mm -hmm. we definitely want to hear more about Mm -hmm. how they can go about doing that because i know that you've you've offered up some really practical solutions on your website um but then more what you what you've just spoken to which is that these artists have influences on their fans which Mm -hmm. you know then can drive those fans to take actions in their everyday life whether that be you know, reducing their own footprint in the way that they get to work or, as you've touched on, engaging politically on, around this issue. Um, so I'm curious to know, being that artists are kind of the driving force of that second factor, how does uh, Music Declare Emergency go about engaging artists? What does that look like for you? Um,
2: <clears throat> well, it it starts on the principle of of how does the artist want to engage with it? Um, you know, having worked with artists for 30 years, and there are two ways to approach artists, essentially, uh, especially from a charity Point of view one one is to come in saying we're a charity what we're doing is vital we need your help please do this for us which is the wrong way to approach an artist for those who are interested because it assumes that the artist if the artist cares then the artist has to do something and and the the, the reality of, of uh, an artist's um, life day-to-day life is they are asked to do many things and they don't have time to do them all is the first thing and the second thing is that an artist does not solely control their career um, there seems to be this idea that, that you know and i understand it if you haven't worked in the industry that the artist makes every decision in their career path that's just not true um you know for the largest artists the vastness of, of their of their businesses is, is so great that, that they wouldn't have time to do that and for the smaller artists the necessity for support um advice and, and uh, you know those kind of things means that they have to bring in other people and other people's agendas are part of it so what we do instead is we say to artists, are, are you supportive of what we're trying to do? And if they say yes, we say, how would you like to support us? Now that can be something as simple as just supporting our message on socials, and that in itself is really really powerful because it translates our message to our you know our current kind of audience that's in the low millions, I would imagine, worldwide, with some artists up into the you know the literally tens to to hundreds of millions. So the best example of that is. Billie Eilish who uh, approached us after she um, engaged with our slogan, No Music on a Dead Planet, as did her brother Phineas. In fact, Phineas, her brother, composes the music, was the, the one who cottoned onto the slogan, if you will. Um, she approached us and said, I really like the slogan. I really like what it means. Can I um, wear it at the American Music Awards? And we said, yes, of course you can. That would be wonderful. Um, so she had a, a, a bespoke outfit made sustainable outfit with sustainable you know kind of materials just to make sure she didn't get accused of being a hypocrite um, and she worked at the AMAs and it literally engaged with hundreds of millions of people um, so even the smallest kind of engagement from an artist in terms of she, we didn't ask her to do an interview we didn't ask her to sit down and give us hours of time but just engaging with the slogan made a big difference but then you know we've worked with you know, the, the UK rock band Architects, big band over here, pretty big in Europe. They they made a film with us in a magazine called Kerrang about um, agriculture and, and the kind of, you know, the decline in agricultural impact. And, and, and that was, you know, incredibly powerful. And that was a much higher level of engagement in a much deeper way. So we, with artists, it very much starts with the artist and the levels of engagement can go from the very basic to the extremely kind of collaborative. Um it's all welcome,
3: though, I would suggest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Tailoring the engagement based off of what the artist's preference is, how deep they're willing to go, I think, is um, is a really interesting approach. But you, you also said something earlier that I want to uh, drill down on a little bit, which is that the artists themselves are not the only people involved in the music industry, that there's also these other actors that are around them. And we were actually thinking about this this question, and we identified You know a few obviously the audience we've talked about that but then the music venue um and then also you know other stakeholders like ticket brokers can you speak at all to you know what what role these other actors play
2: absolutely i i mean the ultimate aim of what we do is is to try and get a totality in terms of the 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 artist the 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 fans journey with the artist through artists tend to work in album cycles even though albums are, are less important now than they once were in an age of streaming we still work on a a system that 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 works around the album release so that's the easiest way to explain it and so uh, in terms of an album release you you know from a musical point of view you've already got studios if they're using studios so there's energy use at studios but also things like you know if it's a residential studio where's the food coming from how much of it is wasted what's the water usage all that kind of stuff you know, what's the biodiversity in the studio? A lot of these are are not city centre studios, the residential ones tend to be out in the countryside, you know, so there's that kind of stuff, Uh, the recording itself then goes to a record company, Now, the record companies are still huge businesses you know, the global recorded music revenue, I can't remember the number, but it's in the billions, you know, that's a massive, a massive industry in itself, and they, They make things and they tend to make things out of plastic and and therefore out of oil. So at the moment, records are made out of PVC and CDs are still made out of plastic and (laughs) packaging and distribution and logistics and all that. So there's all kinds of, you know, possible areas of sustainability work there. Um, Even the publishers who who publish the music, they don't have a huge amount. They don't make anything in the sense of physical stuff, but they still have offices and staff and travel and all that stuff. And then once you get into live, it gets even more interesting because you've got agents who put the shows, promoters who promote the shows, venues who host the shows. So you've got three sets of people there. You've got a touring crew, you've got a a touring app, you've got audience travel, which is frankly the biggest carbon kind of contributor of any live event, anything between 60 and 80%. So for Outlaw live events in the UK, there's a great study that showed that it's around 80% of the carbon. Uh, generated by an outdoor festival in the UK, it comes from the audience travel, purely the audience travel. So again, this idea that the the artist and their crew going around in, you know, a fleet of lorries is awful. Yeah, well, it's not great, but the audience turning up to watch it is worse. But then you get into really complex things to think about, which is in an age of, you know, kind of budget travel. um, If the artist doesn't go to the audience, well, would the audience come to the artist? Well, we would suggest yes. Um, the, the the best example of this is Led Zeppelin reformed some years ago now to play two shows, I think it was at the O2, uh, to celebrate the birthday of Emmett Ertigan, who'd formed AM Records, their record label. And the BBC had a camera crew outside interviewing people as they turned up to these two O two shows. And it was literally the League of Nations going through the door. There were people who had flown in from all over the world because why wouldn't you? You're a massive Led Zeppelin fan. I think the tickets were a thousand pounds, so what's 500 quid on a flight if you've already committed a thousand pounds to see the show? <laughs> um But that's true of festivals. Benicassim in Spain has a very high kind of travel from the UK because the weather's nice primavera simile and the bill Ziggit, and you know the far the creation festivals have large uk contingents i was at Eurosonic, that was full the english people that's in holland you know people fly to coachella not just from the uk but across america to coachella because it's far west coast so you know it's the simplistic answer of of of, of stopping artists traveling it doesn't solve the life problem so as a, as, a, as a music community, we, we need to recognise that, and, and we need to work on the things we can work on, but we also need to start talking about the things we can not work on, and audience travel is one of those. And it's a scope three emission, if you want to look in those terms. The other thing that's worth noting in this conversation at this point is that, whilst, as we said at the very top of the show, um, the, the music industry is not a great polluter, it is, it is a very influential very influential industry wider than than, you know than than just its its emissions and in order for artists to be able to advocate the industry itself needs to be seen to be tackling this problem because we can't have a situation where we're asking artists to speak from the heart about this and not work as an industry to be better that's what gives the artists the
3: freedom to speak Mm -hmm. yeah those are great points and I, i think you know, it's impossible to, to overstate the importance of this audience travel aspect that you've pointed out, because at Schneider, we think very uh, technically about these issues and, um, you know, love to think about what's the most you know material impact. And I think traditionally waste at music festivals has been kind of something that people have commented on. Maybe that's where the environmental uh, impact most lies. But I think you've really accurately pointed out that that audience travel um, is a scope three emission is is one of the biggest drivers and i mean maybe we can stay hover around that point for just a little bit longer what are some of the practical solutions and the players um, involved in reducing that impact one thing we were thinking about is um you know Ticketmaster whoever the ticket broker is maybe offering some sort of discount to, to audience members who can prove that they've showed up using public transit what are some yeah. other things that you've heard of to address
2: this issue well that's one of that that's a scheme that's been trialled many times this this idea of you know if, if you
3: <clears throat> if you can
2: prove you use public transport to get to the show then 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 you get a discount or you get something extra um the the, the you, you know you reserve the front of the the auditorium for people like that you know obviously in you know big arena shows that's quite a big deal you know the difference between being 50 foot away and 150 foot away um uh, the, the, the UK festivals, and, and and to be honest, some European festivals, um, it, it varies by territory as well. I mean, in the UK, the UK festival cohort has a very interesting challenge because UK festivals, unlike European festivals, have grown up kind of quite ad hoc. So the sites that we tend to use are not designated festival sites and in Europe, it's a bit different. So if you go to say, oh, goodness me, um, is it Pink Pop? I think in Holland Uh, it's one of the, the Dutch festivals. There's a dedicated train station at the festival site. You literally get off the train into the festival because it's a purpose built. Kind of festival sites not just used for rock festivals it's used for other things as well in the uk we tend to use farms and public parks and you know a real hodgepodge of, of of spaces um and those generally aren't aren't very well served so a lot of uk festivals will do shuttle bus so you get a train to the nearest train station and then there's a circular shuttle bus that constantly is going around normally electric or hybrid mostly electric these days to be fair Uh, Reading and Leeds do this, uh, Latitude do it, all the Festival Republic, which is a big UK festival promoter, they do it, um, and others as well, to be fair. Um, So that's a simple, a simple way of doing it. Interestingly, we did a survey with the University of Glasgow, um, asking music fans uh, about these kind of issues. And and whilst they're all very supportive of it, when we asked how many people were aware of this shuttle bus kind of idea, the, the response rate of people who were aware of it was quite low and mm-hmm. it didn't really correlate because we had a large amount of festival goes, so we could only come to the conclusion unfortunately we didn't have the funds to dig deeper at that point that either it just so happened that all our festival goes drove to the festival site which seemed unlikely um or that they were getting on these buses but not realizing that they were part of an attempt by the festival promoter to increase the sustainability of the event which mm-hmm. seemed more likely so there's clearly a disconnect there in terms of the action and the advocacy, uh, again, something we're interested in bridging. So that's one. Uh, Alternative power sources is the other thing that's particularly of interest in the the outdoor life space now. Um, Biodiesel has become very popular. Um, It is better, it's like 90% less emissions than standard diesel. Um, The problem is we've now, uh, market economics for you, we've now created a new market in a product that is not sufficiently developed to service the market so the cost of bio, uh, biodiesel is now going up to a degree certainly somebody who runs a european festival is saying to me at are sonic in january that they costed it out their, their event using biodiesel and it literally bankrupted the festival because the cost had gone so high so there are price issues there um, power is the main thing again different territories have different issues In the UK the biggest issue we have is trying to find a way to connect grid power to at least some of the more used festival sites. So in the UK Hyde Park in the centre of London is used a lot over the summer and seems like a prime candidate for that. Clearly there's a power infrastructure in London, it's literally in the middle of London but you do need a specific kind of power source you do need a dedicated power source you do need the infrastructure and you do need to get agreement from everybody involved and the bureaucracy of driving power lines in certain spaces becomes quite difficult because of the various agencies that have to sign off on it so there are there are two that i know of pilot projects one that we were involved with was festival republic and another one looking at how that could be done and trying to get grid power onto at least one festival site in order to show it can be done and to start to provide a roadmap for others to follow. Um, Logically that seems to be the most significant thing that a festival can do within their own scope one two uh, kind of field is to change that power source and if we can help and advocate and make that a reality I think it'll make a difference.
1: Right. And I think that this is a perfect segue to another topic that kind of follows up with uh, something you had said in the beginning, Luis, which is um, the possibility that either the artist coming to the audience or the audience coming to the artist, but we have seen now, uh, especially during the last years uh, of the pandemic, that there's a third option emerging as well, which is um, everybody stays at home and streams. So, um, which of course leads us to this way broader topic of uh, energy consumption in a fully digitized uh, society. Um, Now, one can say, of course, brilliant, uh, those who stream music don't have to buy discs and no discs mean no plastic but uh, we are having actually found some figures which uh, kind of show that the equation is not this easy. So um, <clears throat> maybe starting with a plastic and, and uh, associated to disc. So apparently it seems like that in 1977, when uh, disc cells were at the peak in the United States, Um, some 58,000 tons of plastic were used to uh, produce those discs. And this number uh, fell to some 8,000 tons in 2016, of course, um, in parallel to the um, reduction in in sales of discs. But on the other hand, we found some some figures, and Luis, I don't know if if you agree, if you know those figures. Um, They are from uh, Matt Brennan and Kyle Devin, who basically looked at the uh, carbon footprint of streaming? And they came to the conclusion that it only takes five hours uh, to listen to an album online to equal the carbon footprint of uh, a compact discs so of a CD and uh, seventeen hours of a vinyl.
2: Well, I'm not arguing with Matt Brennan and Carl'van because they know what they're talking about. I know matt personally uh, he he was he he did our research with us uh, so I know that research very very well so and that that you know that they've got their facts right. What can be done about it well look um there's various things that can be done um the first thing is I think the dsps uh, as in the digital service streaming uh, providers uh need to to really emphasize to their audience that if you are listening to the same set of music again and again, playlist or or album, you can download it. And then that just drops off a cliff because there is no streaming, there is no power usage, it's one set of power to download it. Um, And, you know, my phone's got 100 albums downloaded on it. And when I'm sick to death of one, I get rid of it and I put another one on. Uh, It's not difficult to do. It also has the added benefit that if you're underground, you can still listen to your music. So I, I think that's a really basic educational thing. Um, I think in terms of of, um, of of general physical products, there's new physical. Pro- there are new physical products coming online. We're working with a company that have uh, come up with a way to create a non PVC vinyl record, which is pretty much there now. I think we're on the last test phase, and I think it will be ready. Interestingly, that that's made out of uh, plant uh, material. They're working on one that's made out of bacteria. So uh, and it's a fully circular system. So they literally collect people's rubbish, turn it into records. And then when if you want to get rid of it, you can put it back in compost and it will break down again. So literally a circular record in both senses of the word. Um, That also presses at a lower heat, there's less energy. Pressing plants that run on renewable energy, you remove that problem. If you're not using PVC, the toxic stuff goes out of the procedure. So you could conceivably in the next five to ten years see a net zero, genuinely net zero vinyl record. Um, So that would solve that problem. And they are going to look at CDs as well. The CD market is still huge. There's a lot of talk about the death of CD, but there are a lot of CDs still sold, so we can't just ignore that. We need to look at better ways. In the short term, you know, how we ship physical product uh, and how we package it is probably the two things we can do more with quickly in terms of getting rid of dual cases, in terms of not air freighting stock, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, that's, you <laughs> I mean, know, like, uh, honestly, first time I, um, I'm hearing about this uh, uh, biological Based uh, disc, which is uh, which is very interesting, and uh, yeah, I hope uh, by the time you uh, you make progress on that, definitely to to, to keep us up with this, uh, we we have been talking about right now a lot about the technical aspect of of decarbonisation, maybe about the um, when we come a bit to the cultural impact and the uh, social impact like music can have. I um, if I, maybe, maybe just a quick episode, is during the uh, Christmas break I was at home and there was. Uh, an exhibition uh, uh kind of yeah, uh venue on on climate change like an exposition and basically it was um a bit superficial in my uh, uh in my uh from my point of view but but never mind but uh, they had a part on the um yeah how uh, climate change uh, is uh, represented in, in culture and they had a part about the um uh, music as well and um which was kind of interesting because the song they were playing there was uh, as kind of the, the huge emblematic song of uh, for, for, for climate change was the earth song of Michael Jackson which yeah. I think was which I think was like uh, from, from 1995 or something like yeah. this um, and again I mean like I said before I, I found it like not very convincing this uh, this, uh, this this sort of thing but uh, yeah. thinking of it I personally kind of have the feeling as well that um, music industries so music itself is I think we can say from the second part of the twentieth century was very political, um, but uh, when it comes now to this issue, uh, climate change, I, I kind of have a feeling that the um, artists, uh, singers, songwriters, uh, uh, whoever, is not very present on that. Uh, would you Would you agree or, or no, no, no? Okay, I wouldn't,
2: I wouldn't agree with that. I, I think I I understand why you say that. You know, it's it, so. There, firstly, there there are huge amount. Of, there's a huge amount of engagement from artists in terms of publicly speaking, out, and, and you know just the ones we've worked with: Billie Eilish, Foals, Robin, um, Radiohead, Massive Attack, Coldplay. Uh, I, that's just off the top of my head. So there's there's seven huge acts. There's there's about seven or eight Radiohead songs that, about the climate, but you wouldn't know unless you actually went and actively found out that they're about it. Half of Massive Attack stuffs about the climate, but you wouldn't know you know, Billie Eilish's All the Good Girls Go to Hell is about the climate crisis. But again, you wouldn't know because it doesn't sound like it is. Um, And, you know, massive rock acts as well, like heavy metal acts. You know, I always say Music Declares Emergency is the only organisation on earth I can think of that in its membership or the only cultural Uh, organisation that has Julian Lloyd Webber, the classical cellist and brother of Andrew Lloyd Webber, the very famous uh, West End composer and Napalm Death, the thrash metal band from Birmingham, under the same roof. That's the scope of the organisation that that I represent. It's every type of music on Earth and there's three and a half thousand artists signed up to Music Declares Emergency. I know which is a significant and the big names in there you know like I say uh and that's before you even get to artists that aren't signed up but we know uh are aligned to us like Björk um and why Björk's not signed I don't know but we don't need her to sign we know she's on the right side of the argument
3: yeah appreciate that response Lewis it's it's a more abstract issue than I think we can uh we can make it out to be well I think You know, we're at the end of the hour here. Really appreciate you taking this time to to talk with us and get into all these topics. Maybe in a word, uh, just to close out, how can people engage with Music Declare Emergency?
2: Uh, Well, they can visit the website, uh, musicdeclares.net. And if they're in the UK, they can join our new thing, which is called Fan Club for Climate, which is gonna be a fan-based wing of Music Declares looking to set up uh, regional groups that can meet in person and engage with their local music communities. And talk about local issues that relate to music and climate and also join together on the national stage but if they're not in the uk they can join up and we will deal with, well, deal with them we will communicate with them online for the time being we do have groups across many territories so in the fullness of time that will happen in other territories as well but the most important thing people can do is talk to each other about it especially music fans you know if you meet a music fan who shares your love of music and they are artists that are supportive of us it's probably likely that you may have a similar opinion on the climate emergency and ultimately i genuinely believe that the the way we solve this is by everybody real it's that theory of revolution isn't it you know the revolution doesn't happen when everybody realizes that things are broken it happens when everybody realizes everybody else realizes that things are broken and we feels to me we're halfway between those two points with the climate emergency at the moment we need to reach the point where Everybody realizes that everybody else shares their feelings about this, because at that point, we can really supercharge the the changes we need. Excellent. Great points. Great points. Well,
3: I'll let that be the last word then, uh, Louis, once again, thanks so much for your time.
1: Yes, indeed, Louis. Uh, thank you so much for uh, this great, great insights into the music industry. Um, it was super informative for us, uh, I think, for our listeners as well. And uh, yeah, so all the best for music to cast emergency and uh, hope to meet you soon on another episode of The Other Scopes.
0: Thanks for joining this episode of the Sustainability Business Podcast. You can find the Sustainability Business on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Schneider Electric Sustainability Business, or dive into our blogs at perspectives.se.com. To keep up the latest market news, please sign up for our Perspective Pulse email newsletter. Sustainability and decarbonization take collaboration. We thank you for taking time to listen and hope you found this information valuable in your pursuits. We also want to thank our guests for providing their knowledge and real-life learnings sustainability business teams for putting this together. See you next time.